0: Daughter, The Life and Struggles of Rosa Luxemburg, a podcast by Karol Bulevsky. Episode 13 Reform or Revolution Part 3. If the theory of collapse, the collapse of capitalism, is not the road towards socialism, then how is the theory of adaptation, according to Bernstein, the solution? He doesn't really provide an answer. But Conrad Schmidt, a German economist and intellectual, an early follower of Marxism, attempts to deal with the question. According to him, the trade union struggle for hours and wages and the political struggle for reforms will lead to a progressively more extensive control over the conditions of production and as the right of the capitalist proprietor will be diminished through legislation he will be reduced in time to the role of simple administrator. The capitalists will see his property lose more and more value to himself till finally the direction and administration of exploitation will be taken from him entirely and collective exploitation instituted. Therefore, Trade unions, social reforms and the political democratisation of the state are the means of the progressive realisation of socialism, according to Bernstein and Schmidt. Obviously, Rosa Luxemburg refutes these theories. She writes, But the fact is that the principal function of trade unions consists in providing the workers with the means of realising the capitalist law of wages, that is to say, the sale of their labour power at current market prices. Trade unions enable the proletariat to utilise at each instant the conjecture of the market, but these conjectures 1. The labour demand determined by the state of production 2. The labour supply created by the proletarianisation of the middle strata of society and the natural reproduction of the working class and 3. The momentary degree of productivity of labour these remain outside of the sphere of influence of the trade unions. Trade unions cannot suppress the law of wages. Under the most favourable circumstances, the best they can do is to impose on capitalist exploitation the normal limits of the moment. They have not, however, the power to suppress exploitation itself, not even gradually, Schmidt, it is true, sees the present trade union movement in a feeble initial stage. He hopes that in the future, the trade union movement will exercise a progressively increased influence over the regulation of production. But by the regulation of production, we can only understand two things. Intervention in the technical domain of the process of production and fixing the scale of production itself. What is the nature of the influence exercised by trade unions in these two departments? It is clear that in the technique of production, the interest of the capitalist agrees up to a certain point with the progress and development of capitalist economy. It is his own interest that pushes him to make technical improvements, but the isolated worker finds himself in a decidedly different position. Each technical transformation contradicts his interests. It aggravates his helpless situation by depreciating the value of his labour power and rendering his work more intense, more monotonous and more difficult. Insofar as trade unions can intervene in the technical department of production, they can only oppose technical innovation. But here they do not act in the interests of the entire working class and its emancipation, which accords rather with technical progress and therefore in the interest of the isolated capitalists, they act here in a reactionary direction. And in fact, we find efforts on the part of workers to intervene in the technical part of production, not in the future, where Schmidt looks for it, but in the past of the trade union movement, such efforts characterised the old phase of English trade unionism up to 1860, when the British organisations were still tied to medieval corporative vestige and found inspiration in the art-worn principle of a fair day's wage for a fair day's labour. On the other hand, the effort of the labour unions to fix the scale of production and the price of commodities is a recent phenomenon. Only recently have we witnessed such attempts, and again in England. In their nature and tendencies, these efforts resemble those dealt with above. What does the active participation of trade unions in fixing the scale and cost of production amount to? It amounts to a cartel of the workers and entrepreneurs in a common stand against the consumer, and especially against rival entrepreneurs. In no way is the effect of this any different from that of ordinary employers' associations. Basically, we no longer have here a struggle between labour and capital, but the solidarity of capital and labour against the total consumers. Considered for its social worth, it is seen to be a reactionary move. That cannot be a stage in the struggle of the emancipation of the proletariat, because it connotes the very opposite of the class struggle. Considered from the angle of practical application, it is found to be a utopia which, as shown by a rapid examination, cannot be extended to the large branches of industry producing for the world market, so that the scope of Trade unions is limited essentially to a struggle for an increase of wages and the reduction of labour time, that is to say to efforts, are regulating capitalist exploitation as they are made necessary by the momentary situation of the world market. But labour unions can in no way influence the process of production itself. Moreover, trade union development moves contrary to what is asserted by Conrad Schmidt, in the direction of a complete detachment of the labour market from any immediate relation to the rest of the market. That is shown by the fact that even attempts to relate labour contracts to the general situation of production by means of a system of sliding wage scales have been outmoded with historic development. The British labour unions are moving farther and farther away from such efforts. Even within the effective boundaries of its activity, the trade union movement cannot spread in the unlimited way claimed for it by the theory of adaptation. On the contrary, if we examine the large factors of social development, we see that we are not moving toward an epoch marked by a victorious development of trade unions, but rather towards a time when the hardships of labour unions will increase. Once industrial development has attained its highest possible point and capitalism has entered its descending phase on the world market, the trade union struggle will become doubly difficult. In the first place, the objective conjecture of the market will be less favourable to the sellers of labour power because the demand for labour power will increase at a slower rate and labour supply more rapidly than is the case at present. In the second place, the capitalists themselves, in order to make up for losses suffered on the world market, will make even greater efforts than are present to reduce the part of the total product going to the workers in the form of wages. The reduction of wages is, as pointed out by Marx, one of the principal means of retarding the fall of profit. The Situation in England already offers us a picture of the beginning of the second stage of trade union development. Trade union action is reduced of necessity to the simple defence of already realised gains, and even that is becoming more and more difficult. Such is the general trend of things in our society. The counterpart of this tendency should be the development of the political side of the class struggle. Rosa then goes on to dismantle Schmidt's point about social reform. According to her, he forgets the historical perspective, expecting that social reforms will dictate to the capitalists the only conditions under which they will be able to employ labor power. Schmidt calls this social control and considers this a piece of socialism. However, Something Schmidt forgets in his argumentation is that the state is not society representing the rising working class. The state is the representation of capitalist society, Rosa argues. It is a class state. As a result, Schmidt's social control is merely the control applied by the class organization of capital to the production of capital and the so-called social reforms are enacted in the interest of the capital. Expropriation of the means of production, according to Schmidt's theory, can only happen by stages rather than a single historical act. This social control, according to Rosa Luxemburg, is not a reduction of capitalist ownership but, on the contrary, a protection of such ownership just a regulation of capitalist exploitation she manages to introduce some words from goethe her favorite poet when referring to schmidt's vision what is he sees as in a dream what no longer is becomes for him reality In the next episode, we'll conclude our series on uh, reform or revolution and we'll examine more closely uh, Rose's argument for revolution over reform, not so much a criticism of Bernstein's theories anymore, but her own views on why a revolution is necessary.